Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, guitarist Nick Millivoy of the Desertion Trio. I was actually going to go to law school. I was admitted to law school and had a freak out when um, when this uh, this envelope showed up at my house with all the stuff I was going to have to read and there was the bill in there too. And I remember I had to like sit down if I was going to throw up. Uh, like total anxiety attack freak out and then I just like you know lasted for like 10 minutes and was like not going to law school <laughs> that was it <laughs> from then on out I played guitar for a living um, but that's what it took I needed to really confront the deepest and darkest possible path for me I guess that was my choice and then I just stuck with it yeah. until now Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. Here we have conversations with artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. We can be found along with past episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher under Fun to Know podcast, always with the numeral two. You can find photos and more about our guests on the Fun to Know podcast pages on Facebook and at Twitter, and we'd be delighted if you'd take a minute to leave a review on the show at iTunes or just send me a note with your thoughts through Facebook. Thanks again for listening. A quick announcement before today's show. Starting July 8th, I'll be instructor of a new class at Fleischer Arts Memorial in Philly titled Simply Summer Classics. Over four Mondays, we'll be watching and discussing a quartet of films set in the summer months, including The Beaches of Agnes, uh, directed by Agnes Varda, Do the Right Thing, directed by Spike Lee, In Another Country, starring Isabel Huppert and directed by Hong Sang-soo, and A Summer Tale, directed by Eric Romer. To find out more, go to Fleischer.org. I also put together the Bright Bulb screening series every second Thursday of the month at the Rotunda at 40th and Walnut in West Philly, presenting film and bringing film curators, including Sarah Mueller of Cinespeak, Jay Schwartz and The Secret Cinema, Sam Deegan of Diabolic Magazine, and on June 9th at 8 p.m. we'll have Mike Dennis of Real Black Cinema presenting two currently hard-to-find features from the 1990s. The Vietnam War film The Walking Dead and the historical film Panther, a fictional film about the Black Panthers directed by Mario Van Peebles. You can find out more through the Rotunda's Facebook page. Now on to today's show with our guest, guitarist Nick Millivoy. To quote his bio, Nick Millivoy is a guitarist and composer whose music searches for the sonic cracks between jazz, rock and roll, noise, and modern composition. Nick has performed with Mostly Other People Do the Killing, Nels Klein, Mark Rabot, and Jamaladeen Takuma, the duo Archer Spade with trombonist Dan Blacksburg, as well as making five full-length albums with the trio Many Arms. Since 2016, Nick's main vehicle is the Desertion Trio, featuring Johnny de Blasi on bass and Kevin Shea on drums. Their first two records also featured Jamie Saft on organ, and their third, the just-released Twilight Time on the Long Song label, features guest stars Ron Stabinski on organ and Sun Ra Orchestra vocalist Tara Middleton. It's a collection of radically reworked tunes from the oldies era and has already won notice from Rolling Stone magazine, who listed the new record's title cut as a song you need to know in their May issue. Nick's really drawn a lot of press over the years, and he also writes for a number of guitar magazines, but I never really read his origin story anywhere. In today's interview, we talk about Millivoy's earliest musical loves, 
playing his 8th grade graduation party, confronting the jazz curriculum in college, deflecting law school, touring with many arms, the music of Neil Young, Nirvana, and Dick Dale, the inspirational Wildwood, New Jersey, making the new record and future records he is destined to make. The one thing I didn't ask him is about his guitar, probably the number one question his guitar-playing fans would want to hear. So after interviewing him, I sent him an email asking about the guitar he played on Twilight Time, and Nick replied, My guitar on this album is a Jazzmaster-style guitar built by Creston Lee of Burlington, Vermont. I have two Creston guitars, that's C-R-E-S-T-O-N. The other is a Telecaster, and I basically got this guitar to make Twilight Time. I had the idea of using both guitars, and they both went to the studio with me, but this is the only one I ended up using. I actually sent Creston a video of the Jokers playing Taboo, which we cover on Twilight Time, and said, this is why I want a jazz master. I also had Mickey Baker's Wildest Guitar album in mind, which has a really cool photo of Baker with the jazz master on the cover. I assume that's what he plays in the record, but who knows? Regardless, I was thinking of this guitar as a way to channel that vibe. End quote. Let's hear Nick play that guitar on the trio version of Twilight Time. We'll hear music from the Desertion Trio throughout the show and close with the vocal version of Twilight Time that drew love from Rolling Stone. First, the Desertion Trio, then straight into our interview.
Is there anything you want? Well, I guess we'll get to talking about your new record. I guess that's the <laughs> that's the exciting thing I have to to discuss, but we can talk about. Oh yeah. H- however you want to. Twilight yeah. Time is that the, the Twilight title? Time is the record. Twilight yeah. Time. Great. Uh, let me think. And, and Millivoy is that how you say your name? You got it. It's not Millivoy or. I mean. Uh, it probably is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but that's not how we're saying it in Northeast Philadelphia. I mean, Millivoy is like how I pronounce it and how yeah. um, how it's pronounced uh, <laughs> locally. But like, I think, I don't, I don't speak Italian. I think it works in Italian as Millivoy, but then it's uh-huh. like it looks more French. People, people say it and I don't correct them either way. Like, I don't care. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, I guess we should roll right into it. Sure. I'll give you a quick introduction here. Uh, uh, we're here at the Fun to Know Kitchen Table Studios again today, and uh, having somebody I've been wanting to get in the uh, seat for a while now, Nick Millivoy, a well-known uh, gun, gunslinger, <laughs> guitar <laughs> slinger is the word I was looking for, which, you know, is a, a loaded and corny uh, phrase. But uh, when I think of Nick Millivoy, I I, uh, I think of the the word jazz and how it doesn't uh, fit and, and the limitations of that phrase because you are a, an improvising guitar player and uh, I think the, the jazz tradition is in there somewhere, but uh, it doesn't really completely cover the, the range of uh, influences that you, you bring to your guitar playing. and You've played with... Uh, a lot of uh, big players, including a lot with uh, John Zorn's uh, Zotic label playing uh, his music and, and beyond. But you uh, have also led uh, a number of groups, including the Desertion Trio, which have a new record just out called Twilight Time and uh, touches on uh, some of those old music that, that wafts around forever. Uh, good, good, uh, good day, Nick. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm great. How about yourself? <laughs> Good. Um, great to be here. Thanks uh, for having me. I was, you know, looking around the internet and looking for the uh, the Nick Millivoy bio, but I, I don't really feel like I got the the origin story there. Interesting. Of, okay. Uh, of uh, I'm keeping it mysterious. Where you come from, and you know, what, what were those <clears throat> er, early musical influences and everything? Where where where, where were you uh, raised at? Northeast Philadelphia. Northeast, the the great Northeast. The, yes, we, we, <laughs> the we greater or the greater Northeast. Yeah. Um, so when, when what was what was the early what were those early memories about music? What was the the thing that caught you first in, in music? Well, I grew up in Northeast Philly, and there wasn't really very much music around. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you have older brothers and sisters, or no? I'm the oldest, and so I had my my parents and uh, an uncle of mine who had left his record behind in my grandparent record collection behind at my grandparents' house that I could go through. There's a lot of like '80s rock and Hall and Oates and um, a lot of stuff like that in there. And then my mom had more like classic rock type of stuff. And then uh, we had a an extra neighbor who would, was always lending me Rolling Stones records and lots of classic rock, so that filled in gaps. And then guitar teachers were uh, helping me figure out classic rock. That was all uh, people of my parents' generation. Yeah, I didn't have somebody in between. I, like having an older sibling who's like, "This is the hip stuff." <laughs> I didn't have that. I uh, so I was I was a working with stuff a generation before me. When uh, when did you first start playing the guitar? So I started playing the guitar. I just, uh, I actually just figured this out. I wasn't sure. My mom and I had a little bit of dispute about 
when I started playing the guitar. So I went and I actually just found my first music notebook in 1992. Oh, wow. Shortly before my ninth birthday. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what made you think that you wanted to play guitar? I mean, I, they were, I guess they were offering up, uh, you know, instruments in school a lot at that point and... Uh... Yeah, that's sort of, well, I went to a Catholic school, so that wasn't really a thing. Art and music weren't a thing <laughs> really <laughs> that, that was offered at all. But I do remember, you know, I knew people who were taking various instrument lessons, mostly guitar and drums. Um, so there were kids in my neighborhood doing it. And I had an interest in guitar playing from an early age. Interestingly, like, I, you know, I don't know if this matters, but like, I didn't grow up knowing my father, but he was a guitar player. So maybe there's mm-hmm. something in here. If that's right, I don't know that I always buy that that is um, a thing. Like, I, I often in like teaching guitar and writing about guitar say that my jury is still out about like natural talent and stuff like that. I don't think I had any natural talent or, but maybe there was some predisposition to, uh, towards, guitar music and playing the guitar so who knows what was your first guitar was it acoustic or electric uh i had a had an acoustic guitar well i started playing left-handed uh, and i had a rented acoustic left-handed guitar and it was terrible and i wanted to quit after about two months you're um, left-handed or i'm i yeah i am a left-handed person but <laughs> like Jimi hendrix like Jimi hendrix but like lots of other people who are great guitar players who um not to liken me to them as great guitar players. People I admire who are great guitar players, many are left-handed and play guitar right-handed. So I started playing left-handed. I just, it didn't make sense to me. I understood what my teacher was telling me, and I just like couldn't make it happen, and I wanted to quit. Um, so that seemed to be the end of me playing the guitar. And then at a family member's house, there was like some old busted guitar in the corner, and I picked it up, and I could play all my lessons uh, right-handed. Oh, wow. I, having never done it before, it was just a thing. But my, you know, my teacher just said, which is really how you should never do this. He said, "Hey, what hand are you?" <laughs> so I'm left-handed. Got me a left-handed guitar, and then just assumed that I would be a left-handed guitar player. Um, if anything, I try and encourage people to play right-handed guitars because they can buy cooler guitars. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so I picked up a right-handed guitar and so for uh for christmas that year i started in september so then three months later shortly after i wanted to quit my parents bought me a right-handed electric guitar and then that was it i stuck with it after that uh, were, you, were you singing along with the, these new songs that you learned and everything or i was not no N- not at that age uh <laughs> i think i was interested in that but i that coordination took a little bit of time to uh to discover yeah <laughs> i think it was a few years before i could sing along when did you first start playing with other people not that long after that um i think it was like sixth grade so or like i i think the reason that i took guitar lessons to begin with i think the bug that i caught was that my friend who lived up the block from me had started taking drum lessons and then i was probably bugging my mom about like that seemed cool or whatever so i remember you know she was like hey i'm sign you up for guitar lessons when the school year starts so that was a thing so but i do think it was a little while i think we had tried to get to get you know immediately like cool you'll play drums but we didn't know how to do anything but i think by like sixth grade we were playing nirvana songs in in my friend's basement yeah i was thinking of 90s and guitar you know if there was anything modern it seems like kurt cobain would be one of the first things that you might be drawn to yeah that was it it was like smells like teen spirit and uh come as you are 
we both had an obsession with Guns N' Roses at the time. But um, was there a lot of MTV it, watching as well? There's a lot of MTV watching. Uh, it, was a, it was a few years because we before we could nail the uh, the slash guitar parts. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, when did you have your first band? When did it really all come together? Um, you know, I did. I think the first time I ever played in front of people, I was in eighth grade. That was uh, my eighth grade graduation party. We played. Uh, that was a special treat for everybody who came to your party. For everybody, uh, I don't remember if singing was involved. I think it's totally possible that we played instrumental versions of Nirvana songs, and not ones that were ra- instrumental arrangements, just like the chords to Nirvana songs. Um, there might have been some like group vocals, like maybe I think we played like Wild Thing. I think we like yelled along with Wild Thing. But yeah, my my first band where we were like writing songs and stuff came a little bit later. Um, probably that that would have been like maybe tenth or eleventh grade. Um, we started writing songs, and that was I. My family moved, and I met these new people that played guitars and stuff. And then that was like how I how I sort of like met a new friend group. I didn't change schools. I you know I had also been. I so I guess separately it's like then I was also at school playing in the jazz band with uh, with f- folks you know such as Dan Blacksburg. Um, and so that was, you know, that was its own thing. That was probably, that was probably what came next was playing, playing in my high school jazz band, and then like getting used to playing with people that way. I guess you learned the basic sort of uh, jazz uh, uh, songbook, uh, no. something like that. No? no, not at all. Well, it's really interesting the stuff that we played to to me now, um, sort of biographically, because you know before we started, I was telling you about we played a Monette Sudler tune. Which then I played this gig with Monette Sudler last year, and I was like, "This is I played this song." That was really cool. That was I think my favorite thing that we played um, because I got a cool guitar solo on that. I was really into this is super nineties. I was really into my um, shallow body ovation guitar, okay. <laughs> which now I can't stand the sound of those things. What is um, the sound of a shallow, shallow plastic? Body? Yeah, it just sounds plastic. <laughs> um, is it you know? Do you know Ovation guitars? Uh, I know of the company, but I, I don't know their reputation. They have like round plastic backs. Oh, of course, um, yeah, yeah. So they they sound plastic. Um, uh-huh. And sort of, you know, I I haven't thought too much about it, but I, you know, in addition to them being plastic, I think there's something about the round body of it that sort of pushes the sound out in a different way. And yeah. I don't know. I well, was really into that, and I remember playing. Other Side of the Gemini by Monette Sudler on that guitar. <laughs> I think, you know, at some point there was a VHS tape of that somewhere. <laughs> but we did also play, we played Fence Walk by uh, Mandrill, mm. if you know that tune. Yeah, I'm actually a big um, Mandrill fan. We just had a, a member of Mandrill play with uh, Jamal Dean Takuma a while back here in town. Yeah, so that was huge for me because I was in that band. Oh, yeah. Getting to play with Omar Mesa was like, the Jamal, I would, felt so honored that Jamal Jamal asked me to do that. It was great to hear him play too, because suddenly it's like, oh my God, there's that sound! Like it just seemed yeah, like it, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah, uh, unmistakable and and uh, and and beautiful and amazing. It was a nice night. And so I was kind of freaking out about that. I was like, man, I'm playing this song. When I... Well, we didn't play Fence Walk at that concert, but it, you know, just like man, we were playing Mandrill songs when I was 15 <laughs> in high school jazz band. Now I get to play with the dude. That's so cool. Uh, and then we did some Stevie Wonder. There was some Bob Marley in there at some point. So no jazz. I didn't know anything about jazz from playing in the high school jazz band and and didn't realize that. I thought I did know about jazz. I thought that I was playing jazz. 
and that I had a bright future as a jazz guitar player playing that material. And then it was in college where I found out that I was terribly mistaken about what jazz was. Ah, Did you you go to to college for music? Not for long. (laughs) Because I thought that that was what I was going to be studying, and I had a very specific set of interests going into it. And then I found out what jazz guitar was, and I was not so happy. Where were where were they leading you to? You know, Charlie Christian and Tal Farlow, or, or no, 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 that would have been great. Uh, I I don't really know what they were leading me. You know, I I didn't even spend a full semester on this. It was sort of a weird. What, what institution of learning was this? This was a temple, uh-huh. which I think that you know I don't want to I don't want to say too many bad things about it, but. I think things have changed enough. There were a couple great teachers there. Um, some of those teachers uh, are some of my good friends now. But uh, I think that there were some ideas that were going around, to put it lightly, that really um, jived with what I thought should you know music should be and what was going on well i don't think um, it, i don't think it, it didn't has, work for me it, i don't think it has <laughs> to be that scathing to say what that is though i mean I, I, it's funny i've talked to a, a lot of serious musicians about their experiences in, in uh, institutional learning and uh, most of the most of the great ones did have some sort of friction with what they were being taught yeah yeah and it's you know <laughs> it would have been less stressful if somebody told me that at the time you know I wouldn't have uh, labored over my decisions. I didn't even start college as a music major. I started college as a bi- biology major. And then uh, then was decided that wasn't for me when I found out I was terrible at my biology classes. Um, <laughs> they, all along, I thought I was like a math and science dude, and it turned out I was like a music and, and English dude. <laughs> ah. <laughs> turned out the humanities were my thing, and I, it took till college for me to discover surprising <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know maybe something happened in my brain where i like i really thought i was this analytical math guy and then i had to take calculus and i was like oh i think i really like the humanities so i changed to doing music and then it was like cool yeah jazz guitar I lo- this is what i'm into and um so it was very specifically my uh my bad review of my uh my experience there was that in my history of jazz course, and here I am coming in knowing nothing about uh, jazz guitar, we used the Ken Burns jazz documentary was our syllabus. Ouch. And, yeah. <laughs> and so that was like a really opened my eyes up to like, oh, jazz is this other thing, which is actually helpful to learn that there is a richer history to jazz than the stuff that I knew, Yeah, um, which was really more just like instrumental soul music or funk or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then I really distinctly remember my teacher who was the head of the jazz department at the time saying specifically there was no good jazz in the 70s and that was sort of when i when i turned off the whole thing and, was like, oh, and, th- and that i don't is, like this guy that is my my complaint and many people's complaint about that ken burns documentary was it it followed this this you know very sort of logical narrative saying that you know it started with the armstrong and ellington and it died when they died but yeah that's not a that's not a reality and it's funny the same time why they were putting down squares who couldn't understand bebop it seemed like you know they filled the the, the screen with people that couldn't understand the developments that happened past the late 60s yeah you know? exactly yeah. and you know so if you get the right people to say the thing you want you can get that agenda across right yeah there would have been plenty of great people to talk about how great jazz in the 70s was and jazz in the 80s and all this stuff. They were sort of teaching 
teaching these things as facts, which and, is is too bad. And I, I would say stylistically, you're sort of more rooted in those ideas that came, you know, post Hendrix, Sonny Sherrock, exactly. and, uh, you know, James <laughs> Blood Almer, and the this whole other you know school of music that gets left out in that jazz conversation. Yeah, well, I was able to figure that out. On, you know, I, I sort of had to figure that out on my own to decide that that was like, that was okay to be interested in those things and still say like, I like jazz and I'm interested in jazz and this stuff is also valid as jazz. And I'm yeah part of the jazz continuum. You exactly. Know. Yeah. I recently, forget how it came up. Uh, I told Nels Klein about this. I, I don't know how many times this has come up, but it had come up a couple times in a short period of time. He told me that this was like the thing he was like fighting against this attitude for a while and brought it up at a show and was like, this is Nick Millivoy here. And his professor told him that, that there was no good jazz in the 70s and we're, we're just playing a set of 70s jazz right now. And <laughs> he and uh, Chris Lightcap played a set of seven great 70s jazz tunes yeah. um, that are undeniably uh, important tunes and from important records um i remember like they specifically played something from really great jim hall and ron carter duo record which like all that stuff is this like very rooted in the 70s sound kind of thing so it's cool to think now like you know all right well nels klein has my back in this fight against my professor from 20 years ago (laughs) if only i knew then that that uh you're still keeping score yeah exactly (laughs) i gotta remind myself to like all right right right. this still matters i won the argument you shake this off in schooling where where did the you know where did you land well for me it was like i was really disillusioned by this idea that now i had to learn what bebop was and care about it and it's you know it's really hard to jump right into that i think for some people it might have been easier but i think that there were a couple factors one was like a skill level that like my skills didn't really work for jumping right into like learning how to play bebop guitar and also a little bit of a hard-headedness that um i felt like i had the right idea for what was right for me which I kind of, I still actually agree with. That was that was insightful of me back then. <laughs> but that was aided a little bit by, at some point, my good friend Dan Blacksburg was going to New England Conservatory, and he was checking out all this really cool, really amazing stuff that was really open-minded, modern, I don't want to say modern jazz, this sort of means something else, modern avant-garde creative jazz music tim Byrne and john zorn and all this stuff and that really and i had a couple other friends who i was playing in a rock band with my, uh, a friend of mine my friend rob was getting me into john zorn and stuff and i had already known about bill frizzell and all this stuff sort of came together and 
that sort of colored what I was looking for. But a big part was that Dan Blacksburg was studying with Joe Morris, and that sort of became like a thing that I decided was my thing I was going to focus on, was like learning a lot about Joe Morris's music. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I tie a lot of those people together sort of loosely into the uh, Lower East Side scene in, in New York City, the you know Knitting Factory Records and the Knitting yeah. Factory the Club and, and and all that, and uh, uh, that does seem somehow you know where you where, where you're born out of. I mean, I guess you did run into those guys soon enough. All that stuff, but it, you know, it's funny. It's like it, it seems so foreign at the time to everything that I knew. But that you know that type of guitar playing worked a lot more for me than learning West Montgomery solos, which I I loved then and love now, and you know now I can fake my way through some of that sort of stuff. But uh, at the time just seemed super alien to the way I conceived of guitar playing that like, but hearing, you know, hearing Mark Ducre shred on Tim Byrne tunes, like that is, you know, I think in many ways, I don't want to say it's more difficult because that, that doesn't really make sense, but you know, that's like, there's something about the intuitive process there. It's like rock guitar, you know, like I could hear that and see it, a, a trajectory towards that style of playing that made much more sense to me than like how to sound like West Montgomery. Yeah, I think one of my sort of gateways into that music was uh, actually probably Tom Waits and the fact that he oh, had yeah. uh, Mark Rabot in his band and, and Joe Gore and and uh, they were these angular, uh, you know, very distinctive guitar players that sort of pointed to you know wider ranges of decisions that could be made in that in that mode. So. It's funny you should mention that. So, yeah, I was super into Tom Waits. I got into Tom Waits in high school, I remember, because, <laughs> because on the way to go see Roger Waters in 1999 at what was then the Sony Blockbuster Entertainment Center <laughs> in Camden, New Jersey, um, we're heading in the car, and my friend who grew up just a couple blocks away at uh, 9th and Cater Street, um, my friend Brendan O'Kane, his dad was driving us to the concert and uh, wanted to freak us out. I was like, have you ever heard this? And he put on Frank's Wild Years from Swordfish Trombones, and that was the craziest music I had ever heard. That was like, that totally flipped my lid. And it was like, what is this? What's the record? I don't know if I wrote it down or whatever, but it's like I went and got that because he played it for us on the way to go see Roger oh, Waters. That's great. And um, that's, I, I, I <laughs> wish I could reclaim some of those moments of like when there was music that just confounded me. Like I know, right? I don't get this. What is this? Yeah. yeah, I can think of like, and those those moments like really stick with you. And I can think of like very specific times where I heard something or saw somebody play, and it just like changed the way I conceived music from then on out. And this was very much one of those times. Yeah. The Tom Waits thing was huge, and that is what led me to listening to Mark Rebo. But I have a very specific, this is another one of those things that now I'm wondering while we're talking about, this would have been like 2002. Were you playing jazz on WPRB in 2002? Yes. Midday, mid-afternoon? At the same time, I think. Mondays at 11 o'clock until right, so this 1, could, This could be you. Okay. So, <laughs> tell me if this sounds familiar. I remember this was like while I was deciding, like, oh, do I, you know, do I just suck? I mean, you know, yeah, I did. I was 18 years old, 19 years old or whatever. I did suck, but, like, do I just suck and should stop playing the guitar and do something <laughs> different with my life? And just thinking about how I couldn't, I never saw a way for me to like really like get it and play bebop. That was a little defeatist, 
of me, but you know how these things go for young people. Uh, everything seems so dramatic, and it's like, oh, I, I don't get this. And I heard on WPRB uh, Mark Rebo playing Caravan and with Shrek, and uh, you know somebody, maybe it was you. I, I, I could quite possibly be me. I was <laughs> came on tuned on to Mark Mark Rebo at that point. Yeah, somebody, the guy came on, said what it was. And I just thought that, like, his playing on that song sounded like somebody, like, this is my perception of it at the time. Uh, it just sounded like somebody playing, like, barbed wire out of tin cans or something. <laughs> and it was like, this is the craziest thing. This guy has, like, the weirdest chops or no chop. Like, I didn't know if what was happening. It was so, such a different approach to guitar playing. I was like, no, I think that... I think there's a world out there for me to check out, and I think that I could do that. I like what this guy is doing. This is this is interesting. This has some a different kind of spice on it. <laughs> Maybe that was you. If it was, thank you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> because I really think that after that, that felt like I felt empowered about, um, you know, Rebo obviously has great chops and can play anything. He's one of my favorite guitar players that I look up to very much. But have you played with him? I have played with him. Yeah, he uh, only once would have been maybe like three years ago or so. He sat in when I was playing Zorn stuff with my quartet with Matt Hollenberg um, at the Stone. He sat in on like half the set with us. That's it was great. super cool. He sounded amazing. But you know, there's sort of this anti chops vibe on some of that stuff, especially like the Shrek material. It's really gritty and raw and, um, you know, rooted in this like nasty blues playing. And, and that I could get with, that was compelling to me, like how to play jazz like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, those, those players sort of, uh, in some ways transcend the, the sort of, uh, flashy athletic technique and become really more, you know, sound technicians and everything. You totally. Know? Yeah. yeah. And vibe technicians, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> When do you really feel like you sort of you know pulled this together and and started directing your energies productively? This is the early two thousands. Yeah, uh, early mid two thousands. Well, let's see. I graduated college in two thousand five from Temple, so, was it? Or from Temple? Yeah, with not a music degree. I had a degree in history. I was actually was going to go to law school. I was admitted to law school and had a freak out when um, I deferred for a year first and just practiced a lot of guitar. And then I had a freak out when I got this um, packet of stuff that I had to read, and it looked horrible and boring because it was horrible and boring. So, what made you uh, think a lawyer was, the, you know, you were dude, I don't mathematician, know. biologist, <laughs> lawyer? Well, you know, what makes young people make these decisions about their lives? I don't know. Some idea about having a job or something. I could do. Um, I think was was what uh, what compelled me to go down this path. <laughs> And, I, you know, I, a lot of it was really not feeling like I knew very much about the guitar or how to play the guitar very well. Like, I didn't have the confidence. I was working at, the, by that point, I was working at this music store in Bucks County with all these shredder dudes. And I was certainly not a shredder dude. And I, it, that seemed really far off from me. And I, it, What players did they like? Oh, like, you know, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, those cats, uh, who are great. I love those guys. But actually, at the time, I couldn't stand that stuff. That... <laughs> took till my 30s before I started to like shred music. For, um, for me, it, just, it took a lot to get through those fans who would just be like, Satriani, and just let that word linger. Like, Yeah, exactly. Enough and that, said. 
<laughs> and these were dudes who could play jazz too and rip jazz and you know could play all that stuff and I just did not see myself as that type of player and thought ah, maybe I'm more like a like a like an amateur dude a hobbyist who like is really passionate about this stuff but not I don't know it just the downtown New York scene seemed very far from 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 Philadelphia for me at that time I wasn't seeing that sort of stuff live and just feeling bad about my guitar playing and so I decided I was going to go to law school but yeah I had like a meltdown I mean this uh this envelope showed up at my house with all the stuff I was going to have to read and there was the bill in there too (laughs) and I remember I had to like sit down I thought I was going to throw up uh like total anxiety attack freak out and then I just like you know lasted for like 10 minutes and was like not going to law school. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> From then on out, I played guitar for a living. Um, but that's what it took. I needed to really confront the deepest and darkest possible path for me, I guess. And uh, that that was my choice. And then I just stuck with it until yeah. now. Did you play like the sort of indie rock scene in Philadelphia at that point? Yeah, so that's like what I was doing then was playing in a rock band. You know, through college I had a rock band. What we was like, the band? Um, <laughs> we were called The Accidental Occurrence. <laughs> there you go. And that was... Uh, uh, as, as a member of the Hypnotizing Chickens, I <laughs> won't laugh at that name at all. Good, good. We're just laughing together then. <laughs> um, there's something about that name I like a little bit more. Um <laughs> Accidental occurrences. Yeah. No, no, about your name. That, yeah, well, hypnotizing chickens. Okay. Pretty darn good. Accidental occurrences. I just think like, have these guys really got it together? Or, yeah, know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was you know I think we're we're like into some combination of Dinosaur Junior and then like more like sort of dancey punk bands that were hip at the time like Dismemberment Plan and Q and Not You. Sure. And uh, and Naked City. <laughs> ah, yeah. So it, not the most. I have a real weakness. A disparate set of influences. I have a real weakness for that sort of post-punk thing that was sort of reverberating and rejuvenating around that time, though. I mean, there's some... Yeah, it was certainly a lot more fun than a lot of other things that were going on or had been going on. That, yeah. that was fun music, for sure. But the Dinosaur Jr. thing, I mean, your your love of noise and, and, and uh, you know, chaos, you know, seems to be part of that. It seems like that would be a, a natural totally. uh, place for you to, to grow out of. For a long time, I was, you know, looking for this, like, volume, maximum volume level thing that I've since, thankfully, uh, stepped back a little bit from that. But, uh, you know, that that's all related. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, oh, man, I wish I could remember this quote about, um, 
it was in a Dinosaur Junior review where the reviewer said, Sonny Chirac, if Sonny Chirac is always trying to sound like his sonic ideal is like John Coltrane's saxophone, late Coltrane's saxophone, like screaming, then Jay Maskus is just trying to sound like the drums with his guitar. (laughs) I was like, that is so cool. I want to sound like John Coltrane's saxophone and I want to sound like the drums. I want to do both of those things. So, you know. Anyway, but yeah, so we were combining these things and playing a lot of indie rock. But I had this interest in more like out out jazz, for lack of a better term, um, kind of stuff. And Naked City was a big one for me, just like combining genre and what to do with the genre that, you know, it's still something I think about a lot. And that was that was really huge for like my conception of music. And that's sort of where I started, like after college, really trying to head at a band called um, Circles. That, That was probably my first band that like the previous band was was more of a rock band where circles was a, a rock band but i was very much trying to combine like neil young style songwriting and free jazz rhythms hmm. and you could say i'm still doing that <laughs> in, <laughs> on some of my music well, but that's me. sort of where things coalesced and i felt like i found some sort of voice or something yeah that's the first time that name has come up but it does seem to come up in reviews a lot, uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse in particular, the, you know, that Crazy Horse thing, was that really a, a deep-rooted influence for you? Or? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. It, and remains so. You know, I've been, a, I've been into Neil Young as a, as a guitar player and as everything as a person <laughs> since I was a teenager. And then, you know, there's a, a sonic thing about Neil Young's guitar playing that is so personal to Neil Young only, but is also has this raw intensity that is is something I'm always looking for. Like even at its his conception of rhythm is really personal, um, but there's a simple kind of approach that then has a lot of depth to it. That that is sort of um, a thing that really appeals to me. Yeah, I mean that's uh, it was an eye opener at the time. The fact that I mean, Sonic Youth uh, adopted him as a, a major influence when they yeah. were coming up. In the in the late '80s, it made you think about Neil Young in a different way. You know, I still thought of him as the hit maker behind, you know, Heart of Gold and right. stuff like that. But that whole uh, guitar world he invented as well is, is really uh, a rich place to to draw influence from. Well, for me, my first the first Neil Young record I ever bought was Weld. Oh yeah, um, not Arc. Not Arc. No, and it, it wasn't the one that came with Arc because I ordered it from BMG Music Club as one of my seven free di- – actually, it's a double disc. It was probably counted as two of my seven free discs for signing up under my dog's name when I was like 13, um, <laughs> which is a thing. Because any contract signed by a 13-year-old is ironclad. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my dog could get one. I could get one. You know, we could get all the free CDs. And but then- Weld was a particularly feedbacky. <laughs> you know uh moment for uh yeah for totally yeah. and you know they uh, apparently legend has it um that he got hyperacusis on that tour from standing in front of his amps oh, really? and that the roadies like hated going in front of neil's amps because they were <laughs> so loud um and you hear that that record i mean that guitar playing on that record sounds loud like it doesn't sound like anything else the feedback density of it the mass there's a lot of mass in his guitar playing (laughs) and that was something that you know certainly when i heard it when i was a teenager i didn't understand that i just thought it sounded crazy but then it's like you know as i've gotten older there you know i i understand more about uh 
how that's all put together and try and get in there a little bit deeper and deeper and sort of investigate that on my own. Have you um, gone to see him live? I have seen him live a number of times, yeah. yeah. Any, any insights watching him actually do it live there? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like watching Neil, I've seen, I've only seen Crazy Horse once. Um, this uh, last October, um, I went to see Neil solo at uh, the Tower Theater, and most of it was acoustic, a lot of keyboard stuff, um, organ and piano, and but two songs he played electric, and he didn't have Old Black, he didn't have his his Les Paul, and he also didn't have his uh, like his whole amp rig. So I was, you know, I, obviously I was stoked for it, but I didn't know like how this was going to sound like his thing, right? Because part of his sound comes from like this, this very specific amp rig, but he just had two 50s Tweed Deluxes on stage and his White Falcon. But it was just like th- those amps were definitely dimed. They were turned up all the way and he played Ohio and he played two songs, but Ohio was really the standout. And just hearing that tone of just like, there might have been a pedal or something in front of that, but I- I'm pretty sure there wasn't. I'm I'm almost positive it was just White Falcon into two Tweed Deluxes, turned all the way up, and hearing that tone, being in the room with that tone, was like, that was all I needed to hear. I would have paid, I think it was like $90 for the tickets, I would have paid $90 for that one song. Like, after that, I was set. And just the 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 way that, like, it's not about the gear, actually. Like, it it, it is to an extent, like... You know, if you plugged in, different guitars make different sounds, right? Different amps make different sounds. But it's not about, he doesn't need the whole thing. He doesn't need Old Black. This sounded different than Old Black, but it's like his feel and and, and the way he's like approaching the playing with, he can get his tone. But that was, that was like a super heavy thing to hear live and be in the room with that and just know that that's like just this simple set of tools is making all this, this giant huge tone <laughs> yeah the, the the real crucial element that that's uh is is neil young at the end of that guitar that's yeah. what really makes it sound like neil young neil young and a lot of volume like that yeah. just those two <laughs> things in combination with each other So, so uh, what, what was the you say this band Circle, which uh, brought together uh, some of these influences? Yeah, that was a thing that that band was was sort of a rotating cast of people. For most of the time, we had two drummers, though we didn't always have two drummers. That was the first thing that brought along this set of influences. But then, I, I don't really remember the the timeline of like how long that band existed before um, we started. Um, 
Many Arms, which was then that was my main band for for about eight years, uh, seven years, something like that. And that started somewhere in the middle there. And that was really um, that was the thing I sort of dedicated myself to the most for that period of time. We just decided we're just going to go on tour all the time and lose all our money and just (laughs) play all the time. (laughs) Did you record with Many Arms? Yeah, yeah, we have a though two two of the records I have on Zodic are Many Arms records. Um, Doing Zorn's music? No, that stuff is our own music. So we did, and we did two records before that, and then there's a total of five albums and an EP. So we did we did two records, one on our own, one on this small label um, from New York called Engine, and then I sent those to Zorn. We ended up on Zodic. We did two records for Zodic. And then we did a noise record with our friend Toshi, and then that was that was sort of the end of the band. Yeah, who who was in Many Arms? So that was me and Johnny DeBazi, who plays in Desertion Trio now, um, and a drummer named Ricardo Lagomasino. Oh. Did you tour the world with Many Arms? How how far did you get out with with Many Arms? Uh, we we didn't tour the world with Many Arms. We just sort of circled around the U.S. a lot, yeah. um, often. Did you get to the West Coast um, and everything? Yeah, we went to the West Coast. We only did one trip all the way out to the West Coast, but we ended up, you know, between here and Chicago and, say, you know, we did one tour where we ended up down in, in Texas. Um, but I think that was – I think it was once. It might have been twice. I'm not really sure. Um, but between here and Chicago, we ended up, like, in this loop, like, quite often um i forget we i I knew at some point how many shows we played it was like maybe like about 250 shows over the course of that time so we're you know they weren't long epic tours you know maybe only one like hit a month but they were just frequent shorter tours frequent two-week tours stuff like that so we talked a lot about you as a player but you're a composer of you know across all these records too i believe as well where uh, are you coming from do you think as a composer you know, I was a songwriter with my previous band, so I think when I, when we started Many Arms is really where, you know, not that I hadn't written instrumental music before that, but that's where that was just a guitar trio, power trio, really inspired by, like, initially really inspired by uh, Black Flag's The Process of Weeding Out and Mod oh, New Orchestra. I remember that record. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, the sloppiness of one and the technicality <laughs> of the other. The Process of Weeding Out was an instrumental record completely, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was great record, super raw, super gnarly, great guitar tone. I saw, Um, I I got to see them a few times during those those years with Kira on bass and everything. Yeah, that was like that's that's the version of Black Flag that I always got the most stoked about. Um, and Bill Stevenson on drums, but yeah, so we started doing like free jazz style tunes, but as like a Black Flag aesthetic yeah or something that that level of aggression yeah that level of aggression and uh i might have used the term like raw intensity or something like that at the time uh that might have been in like a bio or something so that was uh yeah that was where that band was coming from and then developed into some other stuff by the time our third record which i think is our best record that was the first one on sodic that was those two records we did for Sodic were sort of mining the same set of influences, which were like intense minimalism, like Louis Andreessen, sort of like non-diatonic minimalism, and Japanese free jazz. Wow. <laughs> Those were the, or at least for me, you know, that band was a collective, so we were all writing stuff for it. But I know that the things, the influences that I was trying to bring to the band and maybe pushing my agenda 
or trying to push my agenda on the other dudes was like those things. Um, just the, these like looping ideas from minimalism and, um, just like the insanity and intensity of the energy and like crazy Japanese free jazz from the seventies. So there, there, there must be people that are sort of outside of your musical bubble. What is it like when you introduce uh, uh, your music to somebody who's not ready for for Japanese? Uh, Man, that's a great question. Music. <laughs> so you know, for a long time, it was actually really tough to yeah talk to people, as you so nicely put it, outside of my bubble <laughs> um, about what I was doing because people would say, oh, I want to come see your band. Like, what kind of stuff do you do? And what kind of songs do you play? Like, oh, man, how do I explain this? That doesn't make me sound like a sometimes total I used to, maniac. Sometimes <laughs> I used to say, I'm into the jazz that, that people don't like. Yeah, yeah. I would often, <laughs> I think I would often say, like, oh, we play, like, pretty unlistenable music because at the same time as I was doing all that, I was really into solo 12 string guitar playing it was like loud beyond belief and mostly feedback so you know people would i learned the hard way that um not warning people was a bad idea because they would come see me play and then see me doing 20 minutes of feedback and that be my set and think that they were coming to see like a guitar player who was playing the guitar as if he knew how to play the guitar (laughs) um and instead i was doing this other thing and, and at some point, uh, I don't know if I figured it out on my own or maybe maybe my wife had to tell me or something. Like, I should warn people. Um, so then I started thinking of ways to describe my music to, to people outside of my bubble. And if unlistenable um, didn't, didn't scare them off, then, you know, they might be the audience for your yeah, music. If, if you tell somebody your music's unlistenable and they come to see you play, you know, they might actually be a fan. <laughs> it might work for them. But, yeah, so for a long time, that we, during that period of my life, when we were doing many arms and I was playing a lot of solo noise guitar, that was sort of the way I had to frame it. But, you know, many arms ended and uh, we sort of, that band ran its course. We kind of did like, we went through a whole, over those five records, we did a whole set of influences that really ended in this noise record we made with our friend Toshimaru Nakamura. That is just, I don't know, it's about an hour, an hour of like noise assault. And that, that was the end of the band. It sounds like the end. It sounds like we've come full circle from like it started with these like sort of prog things that were the Black Flag Mob Vishnu thing and then worked through uh, Dutch minimalism and Japanese noise and ended up with just our Japanese friend playing noise with us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was the end of that. And so after that, it just became a thing where I had to I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. Did I want to start another band that did those influences that went in the same direction but we had done it so much and my ears hurt so much that that was not super compelling to me like after those tours i really would like even wearing earplugs it was just it was so loud and it was so intense i thought maybe i could explore some other ideas not that i don't love loud music but you know maybe i could look for other ways of expressing myself <laughs> and i had this acoustic guitar that my my friend steven buono had lent me for about a year and just wrote a bunch of almost Neil Young style. I mean, I was thinking of them as Neil Young style instrumental songs, um, really in the style of like the Dead Man soundtrack. Oh, sure. Um, and then that became the first Desertion record. And, you know, then that that brings us to where we are. More, slightly more listenable music, hopefully. <laughs> there's songs, there's chords, there's melodies. <laughs> uh, much more textured, you know. Yeah. There's... Uh... 
uh, a wider variety of texture, I think, in, in, in uh, the Desertion Trio. So. Yeah, and not that I don't still improvise and play crazy improvised music, but that is sort of like, that's no longer my uh, my focus for this stuff anymore. Yeah, yeah. Is Jamie Saft, is he kind of a, a permanent member of uh, Desertion Trio? or? No, Jamie is just on those two records. Um, so the first record I made... Jamie uh, Saft, the keyboardist, uh, multi-instrumentalist of, of, of note in the uh, yeah, modern world here. Who I first saw with Electric Masada. Ah. Um, that was the first time I heard the name Jamie Saft, and I went to see Zorn with Electric Masada, and that was like, with Mark Rebo playing guitar, and that was like, that was another one of these shows where after that I was, you know... I can't think of the epiphany that I had at that show, but it really felt like a, a meaningful and momentous experience with seeing Electric Masada. That band hadn't been recorded yet. This was actually the night I saw the second set. The first set is their first record. Um, but they were really super on fire. It's an amazing show. But yeah, Jamie, so the first record I made, I had met Jamie at one of these Zorn marathons that we that Many Arms played. And we were talking about records, and he said, man, you should come up and make a record. Like, you know, a couple people told me about you. I think you would make a good record together. And I sort of marinated on that for a while, and then I had these tunes. And um, decided to do my own thing. I got Johnny from Many Arms. He played bass. And then Chess Smith played drums. Jamie played keys. And I knew that that wasn't going to be, I mean, these these are all-star dudes, I knew that that wasn't going to be my band. I just I didn't want to start a band yet. I just wanted to make a record of this material. And so when that record came out is when I formed Desertion Trio. The record was called Desertion. The band was called Desertion Trio. And I got my friend Kevin Shea to play drums, and then that became the band. It's just the three of us. But then on our next record, we did have Jamie. We recorded at Jamie's place again and uh, had him join us. Mm-hmm. Tell me about him as a musician. He's somebody that we've... Uh, you know, I played a lot on the radio and, Jamie. And, and things. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jamie, like, since that time I saw him play with Electric Mixada, that would have been, I think that was 2003. Uh, yeah, I've been a huge fan. Tell us um, about the man behind the beard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, like, I think the first things I heard him on around that time, he was on that, and he was on a record called Freakin' by Dave Douglas, which had a couple members of Electric Masada on there. Mark Rebo's on there, plays a really killing solo on the first track that just, like, rips your head right off from the get-go. Who else is on there? Uh, I think Ikue Mori's on there. Um, but, yeah, anyway, that, you know, I, I heard that record right around the same time. Maybe before that, I, I can't remember. Um but yeah, you know, Jamie does such great stuff. His studio is amazing. He has a studio in upstate New York. He had had a studio in Brooklyn where he recorded like a million albums, um, many of which are on Zodic in from Zorn or from himself, you know. But I really like Jamie's feel for like his approach to improvising is really open. But then also the way he plays other people's music, the way he plays Zorn's music, um, the way... Uh, his Dylan record, he has a record of Bob Dylan stuff that was, like, pretty big for me. Like, I really got into that. Just, like, how he's playing as sort of a, like, an instrumental piano trio, sort of jazz, but it's its own thing, um, playing Dylan tunes, playing, you know, the rock and roll songs. Yeah, yeah. He's he's fascinating. He's been, he's been a yeah. prolific and fascinating player to follow. Totally prolific. Yeah. Calling Planet Earth, calling Planet Earth, come in Planet Earth. Calling, calling, I hear a new world. 
This is your third Desertion Trio record? So this is, yeah, this is the third Desertion Trio record. I mean, I think of the first one, that record that's under my own name called Desertion. Um, hey. There's a cat here for, for all of you <laughs> listeners. Very um, friendly. <laughs> uh, I think of that as like the beginning of the project. So I, I always include that, but it's the, the last record, Midtown and Tilt, is the one that has the band on it. And then, so this is the third of sort of the project. Uh-huh. And it's called Twilight Time? Twilight Time, yeah. And th- this is a record that, that taps into uh, uh, something that Philadelphia is sort of known for. Philadelphia's record industry uh, in the 60s was really huge with American Bandstand here and uh, that whole sort of world that we now think of as oldies. They, they have sort of lingered on, and they, they've lingered on to be sort of an influence uh, in this record that you've made. Tell me about this record's genesis. Yeah, so I've, you know, I've been thinking about this stuff these ideas about like what are my what are the things that are like uniquely my influences and stuff like that that i'm interested in not that these are unique influences to me but you know putting together these influences with somebody who did all this crazy noise stuff and all that maybe is you know becomes starts telling the story but i grew up going to wildwood new jersey very uh famous resort town with uh, great old uh, motels and uh, amusement piers on the water there and the boardwalk and uh, it's got a, its own sort of particularly kind of greasy charm about it wild greasy charm i like that yeah and yeah that's sort of what's so interesting about that place is how like the 50s are very present but then like the 70s are also very present and the 80s like just the the whole just like this whole history of post-war culture is it's the most washed up from the ocean, like yeah, each decade. Exactly, you know? <laughs> it's all still there, and it's a really timeless place. And I talked about this a little bit when my last record came out, when Midtown Tilt came out. That that was sort of what I was drawing on for influence in general. And then it had um, to use some of the old hotel images from the old hotels, I, I believe, for that that re- record. Or, yeah, for this record, for this record, for that record, that's just coincidental. It looks sort of like of that, but uh, that was not the designer. Didn't know anything about Wildwood, <laughs> New Jersey. Uh, but this one is actually a photo, an abstract photo of part of a, a motel in Wildwood, New Jersey, um, that my my wife took, and. Yeah, like for for this record, I I wanted to push those influences further and really dig in by covering material and thinking about how like growing up going to Wildwood, you know, all this music from like the 50s and 60s is really present. And especially I was going there with my family a lot, but uh, often with my grandparents. And then it's like then there's this other thing of my grandparents music, stuff like that and hearing hearing that stuff and being, you know, I think maybe, you know, some some kids would definitely not be interested in their grandparents' music, but I was. This was all interesting to me when I was little and going to the shore with my grandparents. And so that music all weirdly feels like something I grew up with, even though it's years, you know, 20, 30 years before I was even born. But you still walk down the Wildwood Boardwalk and you hear Bobby Rydell. So, like, it's all there, and kids who are going now are experiencing that same thing, as if it's just, like, it's there next to the T-shirt store that's playing cardi b or whatever like it's it's all mashed together so i think it's like mashing up these influences of like you know our thing that we do with desertion trio which is these sort of like american guitar things mashed up with like crazy free jazz rhythms like deep 
like lots of improvising, extended improvisation, like throwing that together with like songs from the fifties seemed compelling. It seemed like an interesting thing that we could dig into a little bit and make our own thing. It seems like it's almost a cornerstone in there somewhere is a sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny, the great guitar instrumental that totally you know, has this whole uh, presence to it that really seems, you know, slightly unearthly or, you know, I, you know, that was a hard one for me. That's the one I thought about the most like does this is this too obvious because like sleepwalk is so iconic and danny gatton played it and like every every like instrumental guitar group from the 60s has a version of sleepwalk and i just thought is this really necessary to include sleepwalk as part of this collection and then we started playing it live and i thought i you know, I don't mean to be so bold, but I don't think anybody has, has ever played Sleepwalk like this before. <laughs> and I think it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, part of my idea with the songs that I chose was some of these songs are deeper cuts that, you know, Busy Port by Les, ba- yeah, by Les Baxter isn't exactly a super popular song. But Twilight Time is obviously a super popular song. And the version we know of it isn't even the original version of it. Um, the so Platters the, are kind of best known probably for the... The Platters are best known for it. But the original version is by uh, the Three Sons from maybe about 10 years before. I forget what year that came out. I think it was like 46 or something that that came out. The instrumental the version with the uh, Three Sons? Yeah. 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 Really amazing version. So for the most part, these are all songs... Or these are all songs that have been covered multiple times, that have lots of different versions of, but then have been sort of frozen in time. And with the exception of Sleepwalk, you don't really, I, you know, there aren't many contemporary covers of, but there was a time when these were all popular tunes. Yeah, yeah. Sleepwalk, you still obviously, I think I heard somebody play Sleepwalk at a gig that I played a couple weeks ago. So (laughs) people were still playing that one. But like I said, that that was part of why I had to labor over the decision. So uh, what's the uh, launch of the of the record going to look like? What, what are you uh, doing as this uh, record's uh, being born into the world? So we have a tour set up. Uh, we have a couple shows, and, and there's sort of different degrees of stuff going on at each of them. The first record release show will be with the trio plus Tara Middleton, who sings on the record. She's from the Sunra Orchestra. Tara's amazing. She's going to be joining us in New York, where we're, we're going to play a show with the Jamie Branch Trio friends of mine oh, jamie branch has been on the show as well before. oh amazing yeah she's a, a, a incredible talent yeah. I, I love that flyer die record oh it's so good she's she's so amazing and uh yeah that'll be a really cool show and then the next night we're playing here in philly that'll be everybody that's on the record which is the trio plus tara singing and our friend ron stabinski on keys and then that's with um cup which is nels klein and yuka honda's duo and then, you know, maybe we'll do a whole thing when we play Joe Meek's I Hear a New World, where we all play together. I don't know if that's supposed to be a surprise. So let's just say maybe we'll all do that as a big finale. Oh, uh, <laughs> and then we're playing with Tara who's going to join us in D.C. the next night. And then after that, just the, the trio is going. We have like five dates in New England the next week. Uh, so a variety of lineups, three different unique lineups and eight, eight shows. Do you, do you now have guitar players that that come out and, and watch your fingers when you when you play gigs? <laughs> well, you know, I really put out 
I really operate in a guitar world these days, in a guitar universe. I write for a few guitar publications. I write for Premier Guitar and for Acoustic Guitar, and then a couple other websites that I write for, but it's all guitar-related stuff. So that's sort of the uh, the world I'm inhabiting is just... Um, gearheads? Gearheads and guitar players. Um, so yeah, there is a little bit of, it is a guitar centric affair to, to a degree, but I don't, you know, the band isn't a guitar centric affair. It's very much, uh, a unit, a trio or more, you know, when I named the band, I intentionally called this band desertion trio, despite the fact that I knew that the last record we made is desertion trio with special guest, Jamie Saft, this desertion trio with two other people on the record, uh, Ron and Tara, but uh, Desertion Trio was really strategic because I, basically I just knew that, like, what we're doing is, like, we're only ever going to be able to – everybody's busy. People have crazy schedules. There's only ever really going to be three of us going on tour at the same time. Like, it can just be Trio. We tour in my car, and my car is a hatchback. <laughs> so it's like this limits what we can do. We can play some special guest shows where I say we're the Desertion Trio 4 or, or the Desertion Trio 5. But – you know, in the end, it's there. There can only be three of us, really, because that's what fits in my car.
so so what are the what are the records you haven't made yet? What what are the records oh, uh, that are wow. that are still brewing that are coming up one year, two year, three year, five year, ten years from now? Okay, that this is good because it it means I have to live up to these ideas a little bit, right? There you go. Um, so the next th- I can tell you about something that's like totally in the works that I have to email the studio and book some time, probably this afternoon. Is that Ron Stabinski, who plays on this record, and he and I also play in another band called Unspeakable Garbage that is uh, led by Mappa Elliott. I don't know if you're familiar with him uh, from Mostly Other People Do the Killing. Um, So Ron and I have been playing together a lot, and uh, we have a duo project we're doing that is just organ and guitar. And it's a little a little bit inspired by the Three Sons, a little bit inspired by Captain Beefheart, a little bit inspired by Thelonious Monk, and uh, a little bit inspired by Ferrante and Tiger. Um, <laughs> so whatever you want to make of that, it's almost like aesthetically a surf band that is guitar and organ yeah. <laughs> playing, but uh, the rhythms are really weird. I mean, yeah, yeah, the rhythms are really weird for the most part. There's a couple of songs that are just in four to get the aesthetic out there, but most of them have too many time signatures and the songs are hard for me to play. So that's, and how to make surf music with that idea. Can we, can we talk about surf music at this point without giving a nod to Dick Dale? Uh, just passed away. Uh, no, we should ago. definitely give a nod to Dick Dale. I mean, that's like... Dick Dale died, and I went out and bought a Fender tube reverb unit so I could sound more like Dick Dale. Like I don't know what happened. Did you it see him? Did you see him perform? Uh, I actually never saw Dick Dale perform, which is really weird and lame of me because I certainly had the opportunities. Last year, he played with my good friends, a band I used to play in, Sol- Christopher Forsyth Solar Motel Band. Uh, but I was I was in Wildwood that oh, week. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't in town. <laughs> I was doing something else surfy instead. I saw him sort of before his 90s comeback. They brought him up. I think it was the Phantom Surfers made a, a deal about bringing him up from Southern California to oh, play wow. at Slims in San Francisco. And they said that he'd really been playing sort of casino gigs and things like that. He hadn't really been in front of modern young guitar players uh, in a long time. And uh, he... Uh, he couldn't have been more sincere and delighted about the acceptance the audience gave him. Oh, he was so he cool. stopped every song and went, I can't believe you're all here. This is amazing. <laughs> he just kept saying that over and over again between songs. Like, wow, this is really amazing. But but that seemed to set off the whole second era when he released those records. On, on, oh, that's uh, amazing. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, yeah, it seems like he was a genuinely cool dude. Yeah, he just exuded this sincerity that was that was wonderful seeing him. Uh, so, so what are the records uh, five and ten years from now? Where where oh, would you man. like the Nick Millivoy to uh, head out into the strata? I got a couple ideas that are floating around. One of my very good friends has this film project he's working on um, that is named Desertion. He heard after he uh, after he heard the Desertion record, the first one that's under my name. He wrote a script. I mean, I don't know how far off it is because film timelines certainly work at a different rate than uh, music timelines. But he says it's happening, and I've been—I th- think about that music a lot and what that's going to sound like because that's—we have, you know, the band has evolved since that record, since we've become a band, and we're, you know, we're doing some different stuff. But that's definitely something that I'm looking forward to—not revisiting, just 
continuing to visit that sort of sound world, oh. this like dark Americana thing. Nick Milvoy um, soundtrack artist seems like Nick uh, Milvoy soundtrack artist. But you know that'll be a, path. that will be a record for sure. Like that'll be something we release. We've talked about that. That that's like. Um, Have you thought about scoring film and the oh, specifics yeah. of that? Yeah. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is super interesting to me. Um, and so I'm excited to get to do that, and I'm excited to think about that set of music, get that style, that sound, this dark American thing. It's a Western, the 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 film. So, yeah, that that's a thing I'm looking forward to doing. I got a couple other records in there. That um, well, yeah, I'll put this out there. So the, that record I'm doing with Ron, I haven't fully decided. So I'm gonna put that out, this out there, and then I'll probably feel like I have to do it. So that'll be good. Um, do you know the uh, the album In All Languages by Ornette Coleman? Absolutely, sure. In yeah, prime so, time. <laughs> yeah. So and it's um, it's a double album, same tunes done by two different bands. That's right, with the uh, acoustic group with Charlie Hayden uh, on the on the second disc, yeah. Yeah, so my idea is to do the same set of tunes. This will not be one release. It'll be like two separate releases, and maybe it's like two EPs or maybe it's two LPs. That'll be the next Desertion Trio record as well. So we'll do this like weird guitar organ thing, and then to, cover, to play those tunes also just as the trio and have... That idea has been compelling to me ever since I heard that record, just like doing the same tunes with two different groups and what you can do with that. That's um, a great idea, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, hearing hearing the difference between arrangements, all that stuff is, like, exciting to me. So I think we're going to do that. I, I sent a text saying we were doing it the other day. So uh, I think it's on. Now, now I can make that official. That'll be, you know, and that's probably, like, over a year from now, yeah, that, yeah. and then I have some improv stuff that I'm uh, that I'm trying to do, but those are more just like improv records and about the people involved. So we'll see where that goes. But that's that's as much as I have planned. Um, you don't want to you don't want to forecast the ten year from now record. Oh, ten year from now record. What am I doing? Um, oh man, that's a good one. I mean, it could get so weird. <laughs> I think uh record you might make with Kanye's son or something. Oh, that would be amazing. I think I have some weird like 80s funk records in there that I would really like to get in with probably too many time signatures. I think that's somewhere like 80s miles plus like maybe like let's think about that. What what would that be? Like 80s miles Davis and you don't Maybe. hear the 80s and Miles Davis name checked all the time. And, you know, that goes back to the early part of our conversation. That's, you know, <laughs> the system of jazz education is probably to, more to blame for that than uh, than anybody because that stuff rocks. That stuff is amazing. Who's who's playing guitar in 80s Miles Davis? Mike Stern, Mike Stern John Schoenfield. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, you know, if I, I'm sure I'll make a record that is inspired by that. That includes too many time signatures and maybe like a surf guitar aesthetic. Like I, I that's where I'd like to see things going in ten years for me. Um, like surf Eddie Van Halen playing on the man with the horn, or uh, yes, yeah, so yeah, that's a good eighties miles example. But maybe with like kraut rock rhythms and too many time signatures. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Four people will listen to that record. 
Um, and that's if, if everybody from all those genres <laughs> listens at once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's my prediction for 10 years from now. Let's see if I can keep to it. That's great. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for coming out and uh, talking to us today. Thanks Nick. for having me.
One, two, three, four. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Nick for taking the time out to talk about his latest Twilight Time and look for Nick and the Desertion Trio to hit your town sometime soon. Check out my film appreciation class in July at Fleischer Arts Memorial in Philly. Summer classics. Hear me spinning jazz and beyond on WPRB Princeton from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. both over the air and at WPRB.com. And I hope you will return soon for more Fun to Know. I tell you, so wake up, it's time.